never talk to teenagers face to face. I hate it. Absolutely. Always have those discussions side by side. Really? You just can't do a face to face. So you should have those really important discussions should be in the car, on a walk, out with a dog. Never face to face. It's, it's really hard for them neurologically and from a kind of physiological point of view to deal with you face to face, which okay. I hadn't really, it was really helpful actually. Hey everyone, welcome to Ben Better, How About You? I'm your host, Katie Nara, and I've suffered from depression nearly my entire life. It sucks. This is a podcast that focuses on mental health, broken down in a relatable way and told through personal experiences. P.S. I'm not a doctor, but each week my guests and I will cover everything from recognizing symptoms of anxiety and depression to providing accessible tips, tools, and resources that support mental wellness. So get your weekly prescription with me, Welcome back to another episode of Ben Better, How About You? I'm your host, Katie Nara, and today we have award-winning journalist Lorraine Candy joining us. Hi, Lorraine. Welcome. Hi, Katie. How How are are you? You you have four kids, three girls. Uh, Well, now I realize your oldest daughter, Skye, is 20. Is that right? That's true, yes. So is the second to oldest still a teen? Is that correct? Sure. So I have 20... 18, soon to be 19, 16, and 11. And 11. Okay. And it's so great that you also have a teenage boy and the teenage girls, because I want to talk to you about how I'm sure there's so many differences. But we were just talking about all how hormones can make people feel crazy. (laughs) I don't know how it's women, men, everyone, them, and how, but it's great that everyone is talking about it more. And you were talking about how, how interesting the sort of parallel line can be from a young girl getting her period or starting to experience becoming a woman. And those same feelings can happen during perimenopause. Is that, is that right? Yes. Well, I mean, I think there is a parallel experience that happens um, with teenage. So during the teenage years, and I interviewed quite a lot of experts and neuroscientists for the book. So during the teenage years, the, the teenage brain is basically rebuilt. And at, at that same point for girls and boys as well, your body, your hormone levels are increasing and changing. And during the perimenopausal years, this is why it's often a terrible, perfect storm in the house when you're teenagers and <laughs> women in their 40s. Your hormones, pro- pro- progesterone, estrogen and testosterone are fluctuating and they're sometimes they're fluctuating wildly um, and they, you know, they affect every single part of your body. Progesterone is like petrol for, for women. It's it's in your uh, gums. It's in every single bit of your body. So it's, it affects your brain. It affects how your serotonin works. It affects how your metabolism it affects everything. So if it's going up and down it will affect your moods and give you many up to 40 physical symptoms and I you know and also we know that teenage girls as they go through all those developmental phases are subject are affected by their hormones as well and actually I don't know what it's like in the states but I don't think teenagers girls are given anywhere near enough education on what's going on with them and you know there's a lot of evidence and research around you know girls who take exams the week before their periods often do a lot worse than they would have done so that it's a we need to know more about it really And, and if we know what we went through as teenagers perhaps we can and our doctors know about that, and they're following mm. us through our lives, we will have some sense of how we're going to be affected in our midlife years as well. Yeah, I, I think it's because there's really no 
or at least not here yet, a baseline of what you start with as even as a young girl. Like Mm -hmm. when I froze my eggs, I remember it was, you know, I was like, what's FSH? What does that mean? Or I would have loved to know what my FSH was as a teenager, you know, or all these terms that you hear about um, when you're trying to get pregnant or, or doing egg retrieval or IVF or there's, you know, it's the list goes on and on. And I'm such a numbers person where I wish they took that at, when you were in your teen. I don't know. I just would have been nice to know. Yeah. Well, I think it would be nice to know, you know, everything, wouldn't it? You know, to <laughs> yeah. have some sense of, you know, all the conditions that can possibly affect, um, you know, endometriosis can start quite early. And it's you, once you know about all of your kind of fertility and it, all of it is related, all of it can be joined up and all of it can be, and you also need to know genetically about what your parents have experienced as well. Right. And I think we just don't join the dots, particularly with women's healthcare. We just don't join the dots. We haven't really studied hormones in as deep a way, perhaps it would be helpful. You know, there's a lot of work going on at the moment around hormones and neurology because it really does affect how your brain works. Yeah, absolutely. So the book that it came out in 2021 which is one of my favorite titles, I feel like, of a book because I feel like I asked my mom. That probably, it didn't sound as cute because I'm not British, like mom instead of mom. But um, <laughs> I I have so many questions and uh, to ask you, but I guess the first thing is what made you want to write the book? Did you just feel like there was no sort of help out there or good well, advice? I think, so I've been a journalist a long time yes, in, you- in, in women's magazines. So, you know, I've edited... L in the UK and Cosmopolitan in the UK. And I've also worked across all the newspapers and edited to big glossy newspaper supplements. So I've I've dealt in women's lives quite a long time. And I had four children. I had a parenting column in a, in a newspaper, weekly parenting mm-hmm. column. And I, I thought it was quite tough at the beginning. I thought this is just really hard. It's just like relentless work. But there's a <laughs> lot of information out there. There's a lot of groups. You know, you can go to mum and toddler groups. You know, there's always someone with a baby. You never feel completely alone. However, when my daughters hit teenage, I just thought... I don't, A, I can't share their confidences. And also I just felt like I'd lost the plot and I just didn't know what to do. And there was so much more at stake, but I didn't, it didn't feel like I was, you know, you're constantly worried about eating disorders and self-harm and, the, and their mental health all the time. Every mum, every dad is, every carer of a, an adolescent. But what, there were lots of little things happening. And I was thinking, what do I do about this? How do I deal with, with this? And they seem to sort of, the title of the book is Mum, What's Wrong With You? 101 Things Only Mothers of Teenage Girls Know. But the advice kind of applies to all adolescents. But my personal experience is they, they did become quite mean. <laughs> and I assumed <laughs> it was just me. And I then well, I realised... I think I they are. Me as a teenager. And then I realised that other mums were saying, why do the, my kids think I'm a moron? You know, and I and the, mums were telling me all sorts of stories. And I thought if we had a little bit of gentle guidance, then we wouldn't catastrophize quite so much. We wouldn't panic and we wouldn't freak out about everything all the time. So I just kind of pulled the gentle guidance together. It's not a book for severe mental health challenges that a lot of women go right. through with their teenagers. It's a book to say, she is going to call you a moron. She is going to try. She's separating from you. You know, her brain is being rebuilt. You think she's deliberately making a 
mess in her room. Actually, physically, from a neurological point of view, she can't even see that. So there's no point getting cross about that. And <laughs> all these emotions are flooding in and she doesn't know what to deal with them. And some of them are really bad. So she's going to give them to you. She's just going to hand all that stuff like dirty washing to you. And you're just going to have to deal with it. And it just struck me that actually it's much harder parenting teenagers than it is toddlers or babies. <laughs> it's much harder. And it, it's late night, you know, as well. I highlighted on your book, one of the, you talk about how you thought all like the time thieves were the toddler years, but it's worse as a teenager, you think? It's a heavier load. It's a really? heavier load. You know, you, you'll be just going to bed at 10 o'clock and you'll be thinking, that's it. I think we made it through the day. And one of them will come in and say, I just, this, this, and this has happened. I can't, and you'll, you'll have to deal with that. Kind of. And right. also you can't fix stuff for them. They've really mm. got to learn themselves. And you... You can't, but what you can't do is lose the connection with them because once you lose the connection, then you are in a more of a dangerous place for their mental health and their actual physical health as well. Because, you know, they leave the house a lot. They start to separate from you. They have a, I, I think that final summer when they're sort of 17 before they go to college, they really aren't in the house at all, ever. It's like a vanishing and, and then they'll pop back and a huge row will happen and then you won't know how to deal with it the next day. And I had, big worries and I thought I'll just talk to all the people who are on the front line of teenage mental health who Mm -hmm. are dealing with teenagers every day and find out how to deal with that and actually what it did was reassure me that you know there's a lot of little things you can do which will make it better at home and and actually their their mental health should start really early you should be talking about talking to stuff about stuff with them right at the beginning as they're going through you should be much more open and honest about things and you should be letting them be independent earlier we are a bit of a helicopter parent generation you think but I guess I feel like you had kids quite grand you you still think you're a bit of a helicopter parent well I think we still have this uh I'm generation x I'm 54 so I have my first at 33 and my last at 43 so I'm in that kind of right in that the the, the middle of the generate of gen x and I think we were under extreme we were very driven to achieve as a generation because we had a lot of opportunities our parents hadn't had. So we we thought we must instead of having it all, we thought we had to do it all. So we kind of, <laughs> I feel like part. we just so we when our teenagers hit problems, we think we must fix this. But also we're very busy as a generation. And I interviewed Steve Bidov, who wrote an amazing book about bringing up girls, and he said this busyness is really difficult in the teenage years. Not being there physically, not you can physically fix everything for them but what they want sometimes is literally you to just be in the room they just want to come Mm. home and have you around a bit more and to not be off doing things at weekends or scheduling all their stuff just being around what they call pot plant parenting where you're just like a rubber plant in the corner and they just know you're there but you're not you know they just want to tell you stuff and show you know test all their emotions out on you and you just have to kind of absorb it and I thought well that is actually if that's what you need to do then I think I can do that right I would you know all the other more complicated stuff that I think we thought we had to do as a generation perhaps we didn't have to do so I think maybe millennials coming through are around a bit more they're less busy in in the less manic perhaps than us as a generation in the UK I'm talking okay I was gonna say not here <laughs> like everyone's manic here I I thought that was an interesting point in your book too where it doesn't as a parent it doesn't mean you have to be you know, in their business, giving advice, doing something, but just being physically there, I think that does make, I would imagine, make a kid feel better. I mean, even my mom, I mean, I had such visceral, I still do emotions and my mom and I have a, we're so close. So when we fight, it's just like, ah, you know, it's very just, 
every part of your being. We're both very emotional, creative beings. And so I do remember when I was going through puberty, just like, you know, we would like physically fight. I mean, we just, it would just be screaming, you know, like these, like you're saying hormones, I would say the worst horrible things when I think back, but it's, it's sort of like the person you love the most. Sometimes you're the worst to, or you feel like they, it's the only person I can get this out, you know? And, and I, when I think of everything that I've put her through, I'm like, Oh God, you know, like, (laughs) but you don't know any better, I guess, you know, or she's testing all all you're separating and you're testing. And someone once described it to me as you're holding a rope and, and this kind of hurricane whirlwind thing is happening on the other end of the rope. And really you, all you have to do is hold the rope. That's all you have to do. You know, it could just, the storm will just keep happening. You just have to keep holding the rope and, you know, have good boundaries. And one of the things therapists always say is that, that repair is much more important than rupture in mum daughter relationships. So the argument isn't really as big an issue as how you repair it. So you're always role modeling. They're always witnessing how you deal with things and absorbing that and thinking, well, that is that a way I could deal with things as I test out all my potentially adult emotions. And if you go back in and you repair whatever has happened, then that teaches your adolescence that there's, you are there. It doesn't right. really matter. You are you are there. I mean, there 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 all, should always be consequences for bad behavior if if you've discussed them and you have a proper healthy relationship. But you you going back in and in, and actually, you know, I went back in to apologize a lot of the times for my behavior because sometimes I would think this is just I can't be spoken to like this. This is the work I'm just not having it. And, you know, as a as an adult, you have to step back and think why is that particularly upset me? I found. What was really interesting when I was interviewing parents for the book is that everyone has a thing that really, really upsets them. And mm. and, I, and I would think, you know, that we I talked to parents who'd taken the door off their daughter's bedroom because they were so cross about the mess. And obviously for, t- for teenagers, actually, privacy is the most important thing to yeah, do. Yeah, that it's sounds like not a great idea. <laughs> it's a terrible, terrible thing to do. <laughs> yeah. But it, to take a step back and think, why Why is that the one thing that seems to upset you? So it would bear them really looking at, you know, is is it? did they feel like it was really the secrecy and that secrecy was a sign of her growing up and was that was it was really exploring that and then, you know, apologising, producing, putting the door back on and explaining why it upset you so much. And I think once you can have that kind of adult conversation, it's much more healthy, you know, working out why you might have boundaries and, and your teenagers knowing why those things particularly might upset you and taking the time to talk them through. I think it's a very difficult time for teenagers now you know they've been through a pandemic their whole futures were were changed irrevocably especially those that were at university and had to drop out or change and you know there's a constant stream of terrible news and they they have a whole set of all the social media and all the things to deal with that you know we're the first generation dealing with it my my 20 year old didn't we didn't have phones when she was born so right with her we have grown through this and we had to set some rules retrospectively which were very difficult to set whereas with my 16 year old and 11 year old they are this is how it is or you don't get a phone so it's been an easier journey right. so I think it's just a constant learning curve but you aren't always doing things wrong I mean I know women often 
a lot of women said to me, you just, you never celebrate the things that, that went well or that, right? And a lot of our metrics are based around academic performance or sporting performance. And those aren't always the good things. Those aren't signs that our children are doing well. So it's just sort of changing your mindset to a gentler, softer one is helpful for everybody in the teenage years. But you do have to go through, you have to walk through fire now and again. What is a good time to give a teenager or preteen a phone? I would, because I would imagine you can't not give someone a phone, right? And you, they can't not have an Instagram account at some point, you know? Yeah. And I know a lot of my friends struggle with that. And obviously, most of their kids' accounts are private. But I mean, it's all just horrifying to me to even think about it. Because I remember when I was 12, if I wasn't invited to a party, I was just devastated crying. And I can't imagine now you're seeing it play out, right? Like you're not invited yeah. somewhere, but we're seeing, you see it on Snapchat. You see it on Insta. You, I mean, I get yeah. my feelings hurt on social media and I'm in my forties. <laughs> I can't imagine. Like, I, I really do feel honestly for kids these days. Like my best friend and I talk about it all the time. Like I don't, I would be, I don't know. I think I would be checked into an institution. Like, I just think it must be really hard. If you're a really deep yeah. feeling sensitive person. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the very, the big point to make in this situation, isn't it? For more sensitive minds, mm -hmm. it's a very, very difficult path to navigate and helping them curate that and helping them understand what they're seeing and helping them respond to it in a way that is healthy is the key for parents. For some children, it's not you know, it's not it's not as damaging. It isn't affecting them in the same way. I mean, we are in the foothills of research onto the kind of the smoking gun of social media. Is there one thing you can blame? And I know lots of parents feel that it is easy to blame social media, right. you know, and a lot of parents have different rules around, you know, we had a very strict um, rule when I, because I'd done so many interviews with experts, my rule was no phones, no smartphones in bedrooms, screens at all are at night that, you know, yeah. it seemed to me that in the night, as we all know, in the night, everything is odd and wrong and different. And we're in a very different mindset. Yeah. And so that was it. And, I, and we would then at the age of 16, we said, OK, you can have your phones with you in the evenings at weekends because we want you to have some sense of sleep. And calm. And actually, we watched the older two go through. I mean, for two years, they were pretty mean to me and they were <laughs> outcasts in there. <laughs> <laughs> they said they were outcasts in their social group. Oh my god! You know, I I watch them rank, but really, it's about understanding how to make them resilient around it and their behaviours around it sensible before they engage with it. You know, you can stop children having smartphones if you feel that's how you want your family to mm -hmm. be. But I don't think that will stop them seeing smartphones. I don't think yeah. that will stop them having Instagram accounts. It's like, I think, it's you know, like if, being like, I'm going to be on a diet and never see chocolate. Like, that's just not realistic. Like, you know, you're going to, no. you're going to see chocolate. You're yeah. going to see. So, so here it is. So how do we deal with it? And what is it? Where do you think your child is on the sensitivities around it and how they react to it? So, you know, there's a lot of talk about anxiety. And, you know, one of the things I learned from the therapist I interviewed was that, it's not a bad thing. Anxiety is actually a very healthy response to be anxious for most of us. Uh, it's a it's a warning sign. And if you lose the ability to see your warning signs, that doesn't help make you resilient. It's is anxiety the right word? Do you mean sad? 
<laughs> do you mean upset? <laughs> do you mean so anxiety is a clinical term in you know in this country as well. So you can be clinically diagnosed with anxiety. That's a different thing you're dealing with than an anxious child. So how do we help an anxious child <laughs> deal with these? So it really is about kind of feeling that they can talk to you about it, I think. And my thought was, I can't be with them and monitor them all day, every day. And I don't think parents should because they are separating and they're going to have to go through terror. They're going to have to face up and do. We all did terrible things and we all learned lessons from it, didn't we? So they need some <laughs> sense of independence. But if you can help them curate, and I talk to lots of young people actually around this as well. If you can help them curate what they're looking at and block what they don't want to look at, if you can be in a place where they can discuss with you What's happening? And talk about where they might have made a mistake. You know, some children put pictures up that they shouldn't put up. You know, I kind of I think every time, you know, we were a generation to feel very frightened of Instagram, quite rightly. And then we are frightened of Snapchat. And now we're frightened of TikTok. We can't be frightened of all this all the time because something else is going to keep coming along. So I really educated myself around it. I found websites where. There's one called Digital Parenting actually set up in the States where I learned how everything was working. I, I, I looked at the social media myself and I absolutely tried to understand what was being posted, what wasn't and what kind of things my children might be seeing or clocking into. And then I we talked to the school and schools were very helpful with this. So you can only just educate yourself and then work out, you know, I've got four children, one of whom is much more affected by what they see on social media than the others. And that's because the neurological difference yep. in the way that child thinks compared to the other children. So I am much more on it about it with that child than I am with the other children. So, you know, I mean, I think, you know, we could be worried all the time. I really worry about the amount of pornography that can be accessed for free. Yeah. And, but, you know, they, we've got to try and help them get a little bit resilient leading into the teen years, that kind of age of sort of eight onwards, we should be talking about what's going to happen, what they might see, how they can talk about it and making them feel robust enough to say, I don't want to do that, to have their own boundaries. Watching you set boundaries to get around them helps them set boundaries around themselves. If I say, I am not comfortable when you do that, then they are able to go to school and say, I am not comfortable when you do that to the, their peers around them so it's giving them languages words to use it's just very kind of slowly pacing and and then looking for signs you know I think as your parents did as you talked about where you think there is something deeper and bigger going on that might need some expert help that might need a therapist to step in that might need medication is constantly looking for big changes really in or withdrawing or you know that kind of thing when children start to withdraw and you can sense they're not really dealing with their emotions very well, then you might need someone to come and help you who's dealt with that um, professionally. Yeah, I know that loneliness is a big indicator yeah. of a child saying they're lonely or sad. You know, it, that can be kind of a, okay, the next thing could be, you know, them feeling depressed or isolated, right? That's, I think that can be a big red flag. Yeah. Um, but I think what you said is really important was that, you know, of just being there and that, I think it's not talked about enough of what you just said that kids learn by example, right? So you're saying, I, I'm not comfortable with that. And then your daughter or son will say, oh, well, that's what mom does. So I'm not comfortable with that at school. And my mom, you know, is such a like dragon mom of like, no, I'm not going to do that. And that's me. You know, I'm like a mini version of her, of just like this fierce, you know, <laughs> little thing. And I learned that from her yeah. and the kids learn things from watching you. They're sponges. Yeah. Like that's, and it, and I think 
sometimes people get, I would imagine parents, again, I don't have children, but, but I would imagine just with anything, like people can get caught up in saying the right thing or getting them this or taking them here where it's just like, well, how about just you're the example of how you live your yeah. life? Yeah. And how you interact with whoever you live with at home, how your boundaries are and how you, the most important lesson I learned from all the research I mm -hmm. did was this sense of how to actively listen. So listening to your children is something we should, we should just innately do. But mm -hmm. in therapy, they, they call it active listening. So when your child is telling you something, you do not respond with a way of fixing the problem. You don't respond by saying, oh, well, when that happened to me, I blah, 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 or or dismissing their feelings by saying, well, everyone goes through that, so you're going to go through that. You just let them talk and tell you what they're going through. And one of the most heartbreaking things that adolescents come into is that their parents have not listened to them about their sexuality. Mm. They have not listened to them about which gender they want to be, want to talk about. They have not listened to them about small and big things. Yeah. You know, So it's that not being listened to, not having anywhere to take those emotions, particularly during adolescence when you really are, these emotions are like a washing machine. They're just going round and, and we have never felt them before. Our brain is all the messages are being built between each bit of the brain. So we don't really understand what's going on half the time. We, we thought the, the brain was sort of, done by the mid-teens but it's not it takes till about 25 26 mm -hmm. so it's really plastic so much going on everyone's going at a different pace um there is research say so the girls are a bit further ahead than boys but if you aren't listening when your children are telling you all these things it's really hard for them to to deal with so they've got to take that back and deal with it themselves and that's very difficult so i think active listening even though they might sometimes be telling you terrible things or upsetting <laughs> things, or they might be telling you things about you, <laughs> um, is kind of, you know, patiently just sitting there and letting it, you know, you, you, you can have an opinion and you should be setting boundaries and you should be disciplined because you cannot be your uh, teenager's best friend. That's the, all the therapists told me. That is the worst. That is the Especially worst Especially with girls, yeah. Yeah, if, if any mum says to me, oh, she's my best friend, Red We're flag. so close. Uh, it's <laughs> such a red flag. It yeah. really is. If you feel like that, you should probably have a think about why you feel like that. Because if they have no boundaries to lean against, they feel very unsafe. If they think, oh, well, she doesn't mind what time I come back in. She doesn't mind what I tell her. She, How does she love me? I don't I don't know. Because she doesn't seem, nothing seems to bother her about me. Am mm -hmm. I cared for? So that is a really, you know, those boundaries to lean against are really, really important. And, and boundaries have to have consequences. But you might get things wrong as a parent yourself you might want you know I have had to say I'm really sorry I apologize I overreacted I I shouldn't have said that or I shouldn't have been in your room looking at that I shouldn't have you know it's apologizing and, and having that kind of listening that's really important and sometimes some children find it very hard to, to, to you know communication is not language is not an easy thing for them so writing things down has always been quite helpful a lot of therapists have said you know you write something down and leave a note and never the other thing was interesting which didn't really occur to me till like you know till my eldest was about 18 is never talk to teenagers face to face I hate it absolutely always have those discussions side by side really you just can't do a face to face so you should have those really important discussions should be in the car on a walk out with a dog never face to face it's it's really hard for them neurologically and from a kind of physiological point of view to deal with you face to face okay. which I hadn't really 
It was really helpful, actually, because those wow. things... Well, it's hard to talk about stuff, isn't it, that you're going through if you're right. looking directly into someone's face because you feel like they're judging you in some way or they're not really... They're thinking about how they feel about it as opposed to how you feel about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense if you're on a walk or they can talk, you know, and especially yeah. may yeah, feel yeah. shame about something or... So active yeah. listening, what is the response to act, you know, when someone, people may be listening to this and being like, okay, well then what do I say? Right? Like you just don't, you, you just, just don't. listen, you, don't say you just say, does that, well, how does that make you feel? And, and, you know, and, and then what do you, would happen? What do you think would happen as a result? And how do you want to, things to happen now? Where do you want to go now? Sometimes they just really want to hand you this feeling experience, something that's happened to them that they've been going through. And they may just give you the tip of the iceberg of it. And then you've just got to leave it for a bit, come back. And one of the other things I learned was that, you know, in a very heated situation, nothing will be resolved. There's just no, it's just not, you've got to wait 24 hours because their brain simply cannot deal with the massive angers and, and all of that emotion and then try and switch to another state. It's a very difficult thing to do in adolescence. So That's 24 hours later, well, it's quite <laughs> yeah, first thing in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Quite, yeah. So the next day you can revisit it. Oh my gosh. And so when you say adolescence, you had mentioned eight, like the age of eight is when you think you should start talking about I think when you should start talking about things yeah because I think just just to start to lay the groundwork of what do you Mm -hmm. think you know what do you think you would look at on Instagram what do you think you feel about this how do you feel about you know people you're at school with how do you feel I think you need need to have a kind of constant interaction where you're always talking from a very early age with them particularly when we told our girls about their periods quite early seven or or eight we were very Mm -hmm. Well, I said I was the editor of Cosmopolitan. I was this, these, these. Right. Are, this is what will happen to your body. I have the information. You know, there's lots of amazing books out there, and I think once you, the other amazing thing about teenagers is they are a vibrant life force, unlike anything else you've ever had in the house. It's just the most extraordinary. They feel so passionately about everything because everything is so new, and and they they take a very different. Take, they have a really different take on everything and mm-hmm. they make you modern. They bring you into the, the new world and the new, I've learned so much from my girls and, and you often you think things you've told them have not gone in at all, but then you'll hear them telling their friends, you know, you know, the reason that happened is because, you know, the suffragettes, blah, 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 blah. And you think, hold on a minute, they haven't learned that. Well, they must've picked that up from me. They must've, I mean, they, dismiss you is because they can't possibly be you so they they can't turn into you so they will always dismiss you but they are absorbing it and it does come all come back and it's such it's so lovely to have that kind of human in the house you know (laughs) boy or girl they're quite fascinating yeah my goddaughter who's god she's she's gonna be 17 which seems crazy she is constantly telling me everything I say is like inappropriate, you know, but I think I can get away with saying that because I'm like, it's like, well, Katie can wear that mom. You can't, you know, like I can get away <laughs> with more because I don't have children or I can say more outrageous things. But yeah, but mom can't No, Like it's been really fascinating watching her grow up and her sister is so different from her. And my sister and I were so different, you know, and we're two years apart. And just like you were saying, some kids are really out. Oh, sensor like everything is sensory visceral and with my sis it's different you know and and that's kind of like what makes the world go around right so and so you mentioned that 
when you were doing this research, that sexuality was one thing, right? That they, yeah. that, that t- preteens, teens did not feel heard. Was there another thing that stood out that they? I, oh, well, I think sexuality is the main thing. Right, which um, is huge. It's huge, isn't it? I think, and body image, I think for boys and girls actually is a really, it's it's so influential and it's so affected by environment and society and where they live and how they are. And I think we place such an enormous importance on it. And I certainly know I've been guilty yeah. of that as part of the whole mainstream media. And I remember one therapist saying to me, you know what, if you could just never talk about it, <laughs> If really? You never say, never use the word pretty, beautiful, never define anything in relationship to the shape, size, look, feel of your children's bodies. That would be the healthiest way you, you really could, be. You could put their value in something else and, and be very mindful all the time to just talk about, you know, how happy they were or how kind they were or things, you know, the other aspects of them that you felt they enjoyed being that would be better but it is impossible you know it's kind of impossible to do that it's pretty impossible if you're gen x as we've grown up you know with dreadful headlines telling us we're fat you know that's that's where we've come from and it's hard to change your language around it well even me growing up as a kid in the 80s like i was always rewarded for being pretty or you know what i mean like well why can't you you know fix your hair like Katie or, you know, that's just like the way it just became a dynamic. Yeah. Weight weight yeah. was a big issue, right? Yeah, so exactly. Yeah. And so it's God to hear a therapist say that that was not how, you know, but I've worked through my therapy of, okay, why do I put so much value on that? Oh, because as a child, I was rewarded in that way. You know, it just, that, that is good advice, but that is, that would be very hard to do to just never ever mention. It's it. just Absolutely. hard, isn't it? So you yeah. have to think, how do I help them? not make it part of their own internal right. narrative in in, right. in their minds where their value is in something else and that they're not drawn into all sorts of ridiculous discussions around it or places on, on social media. And, and also to sort of separate the bits of it that aren't related. I, I know as a magazine editor, I had was always being called about eating disorders yes. and size zero as if the two were so linked that one cause here you know eating disorders are mental health diseases they're right. really really serious yeah. you know it's so flippant to try and kind of everything influences a child that develops an eating disorder everything mm. absolutely everything from we think from genetics now and environment and everything and to try and dismiss it into a kind of cause and effect is really unhelpful and I think it's we we it's hard for our children to be separate from all of that and from mm-hmm. what's happening at at school you know in their peer groups and things we just have to try and give them skills around it and then if it doesn't quite work we just have to find them the help that might give them the language to make it better again you know that's the kind of I think for girls it's such it's still such a massive minefield I mean it really is hard to navigate I think well I can't again going back to social media and you know so many images they see aren't real you know they're filtered this isn't even this person doesn't even really look like this in real life and especially for women or a lot of my gay male friends are like, it's horrible to be a gay man too and go on social media. So yeah. yeah. And it's, I was going over these statistics of that 25 years ago, they, the worst things were, you know, driving drunk or as a teen, preteen, or I guess teen really, if you're 16, um, or that was, that's the age where I grew up where you would get a license or, you know, overdosing on drugs 
or an eating disorder. And now it seems that it's suicide is just on the rise. It's, it's so awful. I mean, it's gotten, I guess the, the most recent thing is like in the past three years, like teen suicide rates have surged 40% in the past 10 years here in the States. Um, mm-hmm. One in five high school students seriously considered killing themselves, which like, it just makes me want to cry. <laughs> so I just, mm-hmm. I would love to hear your advice to a parent that thinks that is seeing their, you know, teen that maybe is going through a really hard time with depression, feeling isolated, lonely, maybe they have attempted suicide of what, what is the best way to, to speak to, with them? I mean, I guess yeah. what you're saying, active listening, but I know even just from personal experience of other friends, like parents can feel just so helpless. Yes. Yeah. Because they're dealing with a neurological mental health issue that, you know, you need a, an expert, you need a proper medically trained person mm-hmm. and you may need medication to help that so it's a you know for some parents it's a really long journey and the patience to be in the journey and on the journey which can go on forever I mean you know with mental health problems it's not like you wake up one morning and say, yeah. oh, that's it then I'm cured yeah. I'm we're done here <laughs> it's that's not how it works and everything changes and hormones affect so I think you know the lot you know the patience of sitting with it is you know, you've got to take care of yourself as well. That's one of the big things I learned when you are going through these issues with your families, with, you know, you know and, and your children, whether you're biological parents or caregivers, it's, if you don't take care of yourself, it's the, it's the kind of putting the uh, mask on, isn't it, in the aeroplane, you put your mask on first, you are not going to be strong enough to help. So I, I often with parents who've gone through more extreme issues than I tackle in the book, mm-hmm. they have learned to really bolster their own health, physical health and mental health so that they're, they are always stable enough and well enough and well slept and well fed and well nourished enough and had therapy themselves in many cases to help their children. You know, everyone, you're always in it together, aren't you, With when you're going through these really mm-hmm. extreme, you know, and you're, you've got your experts, you've got your medication, and you've kept yourself well to look after what you, you need to look after. And you still have some sense of, of, of yourself because I kind of think, you know, there is a worry, isn't there, that if all your hopes are pinned on your child, all your expectations are pinned on your child, or all your need is for your child to be happy all the time, and going through the best of times all the time, that's a massive responsibility for a child to have, and almost impossible. So that sense of saying, you know, you separate from them, they separate from you, but know that you are always there, and you are well enough and stable enough to deal with them. My psychiatrist had told me too, like in the past five years, they found if a child is really anxious, sometimes they would give the parents medicine that they would prescribe the child yeah. and it would relieve the anxiety. So it, yeah. it's very interesting you saying all that of that, you know, you, you would want to take care of you as well yeah. and not to forget yeah. that. How can you care for them if you can't care for you? And also if you, you know, are you good at nourishing and taking care of something? If you can't take care of yourself, it's going to be quite difficult to, you know, role model that in front of your children and and they are constantly observing you and seeing how you deal with things and how you don't deal with things and how you cope and how you recover from not dealing with things because I think there's a lot of you know sometimes you you learn from watching people recover from things and you know repair yeah. what they've been through if they've made a terrible mistake 
<laughs> so is it easier to raise a boy than a girl or you can't I guess you can you say that it's I don't know it's very hard to sort of say isn't it I mean I certainly would say that my relationship with my son is less combative <laughs> he <laughs> yeah, seems I mean, to just, seek yeah. the path of least resistance less and, spirited <laughs> he's less he just felt but you know it's not it doesn't serve him well to argue with me so he just doesn't so he, he just gets on with it whereas he's not I'm not his most important role model though am I with 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 female children I'm their most important role model so you right. know I'm the first female in their life you know this is for them this is what womanhood looks like so they can mm-hmm. take bits of it leave bits of it reject bits of it be horrified by bits of it but for for <laughs> my son it's not me it it will be according to the thinking of all the psychiatrists it will be the other males around him so it will be the things that are most similar to him that he will see as role models so maybe in that way it makes it easier i don't know there's such i mean certainly both their um brains completely change i feel like he that boys are slightly slower in their developmental process, that mm. their peer group interaction is slightly different from... Yeah. I certainly don't think... I, I, a lot of people used to say, oh, boys, you've got to give them... They've got loads of energy. They've got to run. And and actually, actually, I don't think that's true at all. I think society overlays a lot of gender stuff on boys, which is really, really unhelpful. And I think right. they is just as sensitive um, as girls. And I think we perhaps don't give them... You know, I, the, the phrase male, toxic male, is, is you know, is, is I don't know how it works in the States, but here we, we do expect quite a lot from young men. And I think that's kind of, we expect them to be very male. And I don't think that's very helpful. Yeah. Because um, I think from a kind of physical point of view, both of both the genders I've worked, I've had as, as a mum, they both have needed as much exercise and eaten as much. And, you know, I think we just overlay <laughs> a lot of stuff accidentally that we shouldn't right. be overlaying. I would hope that we can allow our boys to be more sensitive now as they as they grow up. I think that would be a, a nice to be in that grey area. And certainly when I manned the, the text line, it was there was a lot of boys who felt that they weren't being listened to by their parents because expectations were hard. Okay. For That's them. interesting. That was an old sort of wrote an overall theme. Yeah, well, I think so, because I think that the thing with British culture is we are quite we do expect this awful, toxic male. You know, I think it's changing now because our sporting um, kind of the big names in sport now, particularly football, male football, are much more sensitive and talk about emotions and much more involved in mental health charities. Yeah. So I think I'm hoping it will change. But yeah, I think we expect some kind of weird boyhood thing that happens with with boys that is not helpful to them, not especially not to the more sensitive boys. Yeah. Well I think I just from I, I do also think with English culture it's very like stiff upper lip. I mean, I it's know terrible. people yeah. don't ever, I mean, I, my girlfriend will be listening to this, who's, you know, her parents are British and yeah, you just never talked about anything. You like went to the pub and drank. Yeah. There's a lot of drinking. Yeah. Yeah, I just like, think our cultural role models are our larger cultural, older white male role models in yeah. this country are very unhelpful yeah. uh, for young boys. And I think the way boys are taught at school is very unhelpful sometimes, particularly around gender and sexuality and just mm. around, you know, women and, and rights and the differences between the genders are defined in such a weird way in this country. Yeah. It's kind of, I mean, the whole notion of gender is such a peculiar thing to discuss anyway, I think. And it's, right. I feel a bit sorry for boys. I think it's quite a hard time for them to navigate um, as very, you know, sort of 12, 13, 14. I think it's a, in, in British culture, it might be different in kind of more urban 
American culture, but I think here there is very much a stiff upper lip and that is really unhelpful for boys. Yeah, I think that's like unhelpful for so many Everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to ask you why, I know you're such an avid swimmer and I think water is really healing. And why do you like to be in water so much? I think it's what's cold water in the sea really that I find. (laughs) There is is some um, research around being able to see the horizon, isn't there? And the kind of stabilizing feeling of being in in the sea. Um, I just, I mean, I grew up on the coast. I grew up in a very small village in in Cornwall, spent a lot of time uh, in the sea, by the sea. And I didn't really learn to properly swim. I couldn't do front crawl till I was about 47 or 48. So I didn't really learn till quite late, but I still spent a lot of time in. And once I'd learned, I found it so meditative. I don't know. I think it's a kind of, and I meet a lot of midlife women around cold water swimming. There's a huge uh, cold water, particularly in San Francisco, actually, there's huge cold water swimming communities all over the States, I know. And I just find it really makes me feel... It so stabilizes me. I find meditation, I don't mind a bit of mindfulness and I reluctantly took up yoga, which is actually really good as well. But I find swimming will take me from jangly to calm quite quickly. I think it's the audio thing because you can't really hear anything Mm. when you swim. And I like the rolling motion of of the swimming. I think it's one place where you can really only focus on one thing. It's not like other sports where you can perhaps like running, you could be thinking about other stuff. Yeah. You have to think about swimming when you're swimming. Otherwise you could drown. (laughs) Well, no, but when I was doing uh, CBT therapy, it is true that really cold water well, if you're having an anxiety attack and you just, even if you can just put your hands under cold water, it will, it will help sort of, it will help not even sort of ground you and take you out of that. It um, provokes the fight or flight mechanism. Yes, so yes. I've, I've been swimming this week in four degree water. Wow. And you stay long, but it gives you, your body goes into a state of fight or flight response. So yes. it kickstarts almost every part of your body. And when you come out, you've you've done that. Your mind, your metabolism has dealt with that. So your brain knows you can deal with danger. It gives you that. And that I started swimming cold water swimming because I was having anxiety attacks before I took my hormone replacement therapy. Mm-hmm. And it was the one thing that within a couple of weeks I thought, oh God, this is the thing then that's going to yeah. help me. When I would get really anxious, I would just like if I was home, I would put on like a freezing cold shower. I mean, I can do yeah. that. That's like even how I end every shower because it just sort of. Yeah. That's yeah. everything. That's- yeah, there is a lot of, um, it's being studied now, but there's a lot of thinking that this neurological switch from this being able to deal with it. And also, I think if you go swimming in a lake, uh, you know, in the morning before you go into your day, you've actually done something that you've achieved. Yeah. Had a mini adventure. So anything else after that, it's kind of dealable with, isn't it? I think. <laughs> no, it's true. When you say getting in like, where that's all you have to think about, I ride horses and you can't be thinking about anything else when you're a hunter jumper. I can't be like, oh, what am I going to have for, you know, or you would go flying off the horse. So it, yeah. it is, you kind of, you do, it is meditative. And I think that's important doing anything that physical activity can really help your mental well-being because it just yeah. gets you out of your head and gets you yeah. in your body. All right. So I'm going to, we always end with these questions. Number one, what do you do for a mental break? Which sounds like swim, but I don't. Like when you just I do swim, but I but outside is you know I feel like I need daylight mm-hmm. uh, for for a mental break. Or I I I I discovered yoga works when I was commissioned to write a piece about how rubbish yoga was and what a con. <laughs> 
it was and how awful we'd all been tricked how terrible actually turns out it does actually work I know it's really good for you (laughs) and um you can do it on YouTube so I do if I if I am struggling during the day and I've got a lot on I'll do 10 minutes of yoga and then when is the last time you cried um oh I don't know I guess I'm I'm I have I'm I don't tend to cry in intensely serious situations but I but I will cry on any soppy film advert anything like that will make me cry or I'll cry at the joy of something will just overwhelm me and I won't be able to keep it in and it is the single most embarrassing thing <laughs> that I do and the children they find it they're just horrified by it. I will read on the back of a cereal packet a, a piece about a charity or if you buy this cereal um a small child will benefit and then I will be in floods of tears in the supermarket and I will be abandoned by my family because yeah. those kind of things whereas I don't know I, I find it quite hard to cry during inte- really intense quite yeah. serious situations my dad was very very ill recently and I was not tearful at all and I thought that's a bit odd <laughs> actually my mom is like that she would we'd be like when you would rent videos and she'd be like crying at a trailer, you know, in the, my mom, my sister and I are like, oh, you know, like walking away from her. But some people, yeah, like they're just crying at that, but not. That's okay. Process it in a different way. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. That's good. At least, at least you're crying, you know, yes. letting it out. <laughs> what are you currently reading? Oh, I'm uh, reading Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet. Uh, which is one of the most extraordinary, it's based on the story of Hamlet. It's one of the most, I mean, I love Maggie O'Farrell. I judged the Women's Prize for Fiction this year and I read some amazing books. Um, and just, I'm just about, once I've finished um, Hamlet, I'm going to start uh, reading One Sky Day again, which is a book by Leonie Ross, which is a magic, it's a book, of, it's a, I, think, I guess you'd call it magical realism as a, th- okay. as a kind of genre, but it's just the most extraordinary book and it took me so out of my head Last time I read it, One Sky Day, it's called. It's just extraordinary. It's about a a magical island where I can't, it's just so lovely and amazing. I need a a new book. And the other book, you said it's Hamlet, like is in Hamnet. Shakespeare Hamlet. It's based on Hamlet, but it's called Hamnet. So it's about, it's the story of Hamlet, basically, but it's told in this really... I mean, Maggie O'Farrell writes the most beautiful books. And and I also want to read The Overstory that somebody's just bought me. That's the Richard Powers book as well. I've heard that's really good too. What is the best and worst advice you've been given over your career? I think, uh, what's the best advice? I, I think I discovered the best advice, which has been the thing that's most been most helpful to me in, you know, and I've done a lot of big things as, as an editor and I worked on newspapers. Yeah. So I was a news reporter. So I went abroad, I covered all sorts of things. And then I came back and I worked in fashion for 15, <laughs> 20 years. Is you, once you realize that not everyone will like you and statistically that's impossible. So it's yeah. just impossible. You can't. And you have, therefore you don't have to worry about that that's been quite helpful in my career because I can be quite unemotional in 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 business situations and not get my own sense of self affected by whether someone likes me or not because they can't all like you and then that you don't like everyone yourself so that would be insane to assume it but I know I watch it with a lot a lot of young women that I've managed in the big teams that I've managed I thought why are they getting so upset oh because they want everyone to like them and that's not possible there's 40 people in the room they can't possibly all like one person so I think once you free yourself that was quite helpful and I don't know I'm not sure what the worst advice is I think the worst advice sometimes has been um 
you know, see what everyone else does and then work out what you do. And, and actually that that goes against trusting your instinct because trusting your instinct is absolutely that voice <laughs> is the is the one. <laughs> Just when other people say, oh, well, let's live, we'll all meet and then we'll sort it out and we'll do it together. And you've got that voice saying, no, that's not, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I, listening to other people working in, in a way that I wouldn't normally work or telling me that that probably won't work has been, that's the the worst bit, you know, when I've ignored the thing inside my head that said, oh, you should just, you should just do that because that's the best way. Mm-hmm. Your gut. You know, it is, I, I think it's probably, there probably is science around it as well, the deeper bit of the brain that's that's like a computer that's done all the kind of, made, done the whole formula in front of you. <laughs> And worked it out in that way, but you're you you can't you're not quite accessing that deeper bit. So you just sort of think, oh, I'm going to look at the sensor bit bit and what everyone else says. When actually your brain's actually done that as a computer and worked it out based on your algorithm and who you are, and you're trying to fit yourself around who everyone else is and their yes. algorithms. But you ignore that. And actually, I think you know, and, and success is whether it makes you happy or not. Really, isn't it? Not the sort of status and all the other symbols of it. You know, I've learned that as you get older, it doesn't really. those bits don't matter so much it's whether you're sort of joining your day you're having a good day that's the key isn't it that's such a good point though that so many people that I look up to always come back to that where it's like if you're true to yourself and and doing something that that is real to you that's when you really succeed you know because it's people can tell when it's not sincere you know it's not when it, and I think in this day and age, especially with social media, when everyone's trying to be like everyone else, like you're saying, you want to listen to what what is your gut telling you or your yeah. intuition? What do you want to do? And also, can you be softer? I think that's my been the biggest sort of learning curve of this. You know, I think I've worked very hard in my career, mm. and uh, most of my bosses have been male, so I've worked in probably quite a male way. Um, and actually, as you get older, you think what if we did this in a softer way <laughs> yeah you know, a good point. Like we, could we be softer around all of this and I think certainly softening around teenagers as well for, for sure softening around family softening it is a bit you know that it's been a quite a nice learning curve for me in the last sort of five or six years I think wow yeah that's a really good point what Instagram account do you find uplifting if any because, you know, social media can be oh, I Well, I follow every swimmer. Okay, so swimming. swimming. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. I'm, I'm always looking at horses, so I get it. Yes, I get it. So just I'm in that world. I love to see places. Um, oh, there's an amazing woman who photographs Antarctica and the sea called Camilla. I can't remember her surname because people have their the handles are so different from their actual names, so I can never remember yeah. um, all of them. But there's... I. I don't know. There's a very um, there's an amazing British podcaster called Elizabeth Day who um, does the How to Fail podcast, and her Instagram is absolutely brilliant. It's very uplifting. And then there's um, a thinker. I guess you'd call him a thinker called, called Mo Gaudat. G A W D A T. Gaudat. I think you pronounce it. He's an Egyptian. He was uh, Google's CEO of everything, and um, his son died, and he started a podcast podcast called Slow Mo, and he wrote a book about happiness based on what he'd learned from the death of his son. His son died um, in a in operation when he was in his twenties, and it's the most he is the most extraordinarily uplifting person wow. to follow because his sense of 
who we are is based very much on on the science of who we are, but also on the energy of who we are and what makes us personally in because we're such bespoke beings it's very difficult to have rules for all of us and i think his ethos on life and he has a very amazing way of explaining life after death which mm. i think anyone who's lost anyone would find incredibly comforting um i can't possibly explain it because he's very scientific but yeah no, Gorda, but- he's amazing he's he's written two really big books and he came on the news in the uk and he was on Channel 4 News and he talked about one of the books on happiness. And it was the most watched clip ever of any news piece, more than kind of royal. Oh my gosh, I need to anything. I need to look Amazing. him up right now because my my sister recently lost her stepson. So I need to I need to send this book to her. I'll, um, if you listen to Elizabeth Day, listen to okay. him. He's been on the podcast three times, but the last time he's on fairly recently um is really it's an amazing conversation it's elizabeth day how to fail mo gorda you have a look okay it's quite yeah wow yeah, yeah. I've, i need to get that book for her like asap for christmas <laughs> yeah he's very good on grief he's very good on grief yeah and you it's, know, it's you know there's yeah. really nothing you there's not much you can say when no. you talk about active listening that's what I just try to do with them. Yeah. And her husband. Is, yeah. There's really yeah. nothing to say with that. And it's awful. Just child. acknowledge it's awful. Yeah, I know. I'm it's like, it's fucking so, awful, you know? Well, isn't that, it's the worst thing that will ever happen to anyone ever. It's just, there's no, you know, there's no making anyone feel better on that. No. There's nothing to say, yeah. No, they're really, he actually, and he took his life. So there's just really, sorry to end on such a sad, <laughs> I'm like, but no, there really isn't. And I think that's what's so important though. I talk about this all the time with mental health and with stuff, like don't sugarcoat it. Like it is awful, right? Like, and yeah. acknowledge when things are awful. Cause I think that actually does make people feel better with them being like, like you said, oh, well, when my da da da, or when, you know, people want to go into those things mm. or band aid it right away, cause it makes people uncomfortable, right? Like, well, a ther- that, one of the therapists I interviewed told me that p- pain is an agent of change. Mm. So all we're doing in life is going through constant change and if as you go through the pain you have to go through the pain that's the yeah. only way things will move forward it's the only way stuff is gonna your life is gonna change that there is no making it better I don't think in some situations like that no no thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode thank you to Lorraine for joining us where can our listeners find you well, I am at Lorraine Candy, L-O-R-R-A-I-N-E-C-A-N-D-Y on Instagram, Twitter. I'm thinking about TikTok, but I'm not quite sure <laughs> I can technically work it. I've got time I to do it, it but it's yeah, I'm on Instagram um, and on Facebook at that Lorraine Candy. And your podcast, you mentioned your... And our podcast is called it's... Postcards from Midlife. All right. Well, that is all, folks. Be sure to subscribe to Ben Better HBU, and we can be found on Apple and Spotify and everywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you for tuning in to Ben Better. How about you? To learn more, please visit benbetterhbu.com and check out our Instagram, bbhbu. Slide into our DMs with your questions and or comments. Also, be sure to subscribe for your weekly prescription. This pharmacy is open 24-7.